Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. For the second half of these interviews, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash pryingpriest. But for now, enjoy the show. Welcome, Brayden, to finally an episode of the Prying Priest podcast. I say finally because it took us a while to get the technical stuff right, but I also say finally because you are one of my most anticipated guests, and I'm really excited to go over your story and everything. Wow, that's an honor. It is. I'm a huge fan. I can't wait to be pried into by Father Yuri. Uh, So I wanted to start today's interview by, first of all, instead of just me talking about how we met or anything like that, I want to hear your side of the story of your first impressions of me, how we met, and sort of your take on the whole Father Yuri person. Yeah, good question. Uh, so we met in Winnipeg uh, at an event that you started called Beerology. Uh, I was brought there by other undergraduate students from where I did my undergrad, which is at a Canadian Mennonite University. And uh, it was awesome. It was a really, uh, I think there was a very heated discussion that night about some uh, scholastic issue. Yeah, to, clar- to and, clarify, uh, <laughs> to clarify, Beerology was a interdenominational Christian discussion group where I would gather friends to come talk yeah. about theology, and I would pick a theme for the day, and people would discuss, and inevitably one day someone's going to yell at another person. So that happened the, the one and only time that you ever came. Yeah, it was a thrill. <laughs> <laughs> I think my personality type is uh, very much non confrontational and I don't like a lot of conflict even though I'm an academic I don't like arguing with people I like to describe things and to hear other people's uh perspectives but I don't like ah, uh too bad that's not I what we like do arguing. here that's not what we do here on the prying priest <laughs> yeah we just argue and <laughs> argue, argue the whole time. <laughs> anyways yeah, continue well, we your argue. story yeah and uh we I I you made a good impression on me. I mean, it was a really fun night. And I think the way you even handled simmering down the uh, the conflict was really impressive to me. And then I didn't talk to you again for quite some time until my wife and I moved to Hamilton, Ontario. And I went to McMaster and I studied uh, religious studies um, and continental philosophy at McMaster University. And then I... I inevitably, because we both lived in the same city then, I was like, well, we don't have any friends. So I remember Yuri. He was awesome. And I so still, we got I to st- know you guys. I still don't have any friends now that you left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we don't either. So we should just move back to the same place. <laughs> yeah, we'll meet in the middle. Thunder Bay? Yeah, Thunder Bay's nice. I was just there. Oh, that's kind of you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is very kind to live in Thunder <laughs> Bay. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I find your story... Um, every part of your story, but particularly your faith background, your religious upbringing, very fascinating. It is quite unorthodox, and I'm very excited to sort of ask about it and for you to fill in some of the gaps in my knowledge of your life. Sure. I can't wait. Uh, so you got to start at the beginning. So I, I, your dad was a pastor, right? 
Yeah, Do my I have dad's that right. Yeah, my dad's a pastor. I feel like a lot of your guests are going to be PKs on this podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I grew up Pentecostal, uh, so that basically means that we believed that the Holy Spirit was not only a real being in the universe as a part of the Trinity, but also presently active all around us supernaturally all of the time. So uh, speaking in tongues, miracles, prophecy, but literally speaking, all of these things would happen, right? So we're telling the future, we're healing the sick, we are, you You're know. telling the future? Yeah, to people, sure, yeah. Like, what do you mean telling the future? So we would call it a word of knowledge. There's different terms for it, but uh, sort of a, uh, we would listen to hear if God was speaking to us in that moment to tap into whatever, sometimes they would call it a download from heaven. There was lots of different like neologisms and like lingo that are all, we're all floating around this culture, but uh, you would hear from God and then you would go to that person that whoever it might be that you get highlighted to you. That's another phrase. You get a person highlighted and then you walk up to them and you say, you know what? I'm just feeling God's telling me right now that you are about to walk into a season. So there's lots of key words here. Yeah, a season is a door to unlock. And yeah, there's so many buzzwords. It's a whole different culture, right? Um, there was things called, uh, there was this event we would do kind of like after, do you know what an altar call is? Altar call would be when a pastor, maybe at the end of a service, calls people up to the altar who want to convert to Christianity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But sometimes we would have this add-on to an altar call, which was called a, uh, a fire tunnel. Fire tunnels where you have two people, uh, or a lot of people, but two people, you know, combining their hands to create an arch where people will walk through a tunnel of people who have combined hands. And uh, the goal was that by the time you had reached the end of the tunnel, you'd be inebriated in the Holy Spirit's presence. And so you get drunk in the Holy Spirit and then you'd be falling on the floor like a holy roller, as we say. Sorry, we're talking about like like actually showing symptoms yeah, of symptoms inebriation. Of, yeah, symptoms yeah. of... So like, so stumbling on the ground and uh, it's supposed to be this sort of mystical union that you reach. And in some ways it plays off of, like they would say that, you know, getting drunk off of alcohol is a counterfeit of getting drunk in the Holy Spirit, which is this. Oh, it's like a cheaper version. Yeah. So this is the real deal here, you know. So you're drinking a beer right now. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're just. I'm just participating (laughs) in a cheaper version of the Holy Spirit, Brayden. Well, what's interesting is they there's there's so much like purity culture wrapped up into this, but for how sensual it is. Like we talk about we talked about um, in certain circles. I, I heard people talk about this experience as like a almost they didn't use the word sexual, but it was like this sensual union with God, but it was never actually sensual, even though, I mean, they used fog machines and there was like lights and yeah, we did enact our senses all the time, but right. it was like, you have to kind of get beyond, it's just sort of a gateway. I don't know if you've ever read St. Maximus, the confessor, but yeah. in his platonic view of like the divine liturgy, you're like starting from the the liturgy and that all like enacts the senses. You smell incense, you see the uh, procession of around the altar and everything. And you're, you're, all of your senses are being uh, engaged, but then that's just the gateway. When you get to like the Eucharistic experience, the communion experience, that is where you transcend your senses and get to something more 
desirable, which is to not be in the senses, to get to this static kind of union with God that's beyond this. And I think it's kind of similar in some Pentecostal services because you don't want to get, you don't want to be in the, in the body too much, you know, just enough to mm-hmm. get to where God's at, bodilessness. Right. Can you talk a bit, you mentioned the term purity culture. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back a bit to your experience growing up in the Pentecostal church and then purity culture. So I've talked to some people recently and I've used the term purity culture. And unless you sort of grow up in it, you really don't know what it is. Yeah. And can you just talk a little bit about purity culture and then how it played a role in your Pentecostal upbringing? Yeah. I can only speak about this stuff personally. I haven't done any sort of extended well, that's academic what, research. That's, so. that's what I'm hoping for yeah. is the personal side. I, uh, so, yeah. I mean, I grew up uh, learning a lot about uh, sort of the customary cultural taboos uh, around sex or alcohol or, I mean, everything, even swearing, you know. And so, um, or saying the Lord's name in vain, or, I mean, there was just so many like, uh, things that were like, no, don't do that because, and it was never so much, I didn't grow up in a sort of pietistic puritanical community where it was like, if you do this, God's wrath is on you. But it's like, if you do this, then you're not going to experience intimacy with father God or daddy God or papa God, or there was different sort of ways of talking about God as a paternal figure. And, uh, and so like, you're always missing out on the relationship and the word religion was a no, no. So like, it's not religious, it's relationship, which <laughs> is always, uh, I think, I think that's the kind of thing that's funny because it's still extremely religious, of course, but, um, but they wanted to avoid the taboos of that, but then still have the taboos about everything else, which is like, don't have sex before right. you're married. Uh, um, which led people to do everything from like everything else other than sex before marriage. <laughs> Purity and culture makes okay. you a little more dirty sometimes, I find. It makes you more creative. It, that's for sure. <laughs> and then uh, don't watch, you know, movies that have nudity or swearing or... Uh, but violence is okay. Usually violence is okay. That was my... Uh, uh, that was my observation was that I would watch a movie with my dad... And he'd say, close your eyes, boys, when, you know, titties are on the screen. And then, like, if Rambo was shooting up a little, uh, committing genocide in a village or something, he's like, all right, guys, open the eyes. That's the good part. And we're like, holy shit, dad. That's terrifying. I'm like eight years old. Uh, so it's just, it's kind of funny the way that it, it, the things that they choose, that we choose and that we chose and that we consist, consistently participated in, in the culture that were, you know, this is off limits. Because that this do not doing this makes you pure, you pure-hearted uh, Christian, uh, and then this thing will kind of add a layer of filth and corruption to your uh, to your spiritual life. What's the legacy of purity culture in your own life? Uh, as in generationally? No, like just in what kind of effects has being brought up? In uh, okay. a context of purity culture, how has that affected your life later? Yeah, I mean, I have a tattoo that says "purified" right here on my uh, on my forearm. Uh, I, it was extremely important for me as a teenager who watched a lot of porn. Um, I think um, it created a sense of shame, uh, yuckiness around my genitals, around sex when I was even married. Um, the effects of it were pretty negative for me. And I've heard from a lot of people who grew up in purity culture that they had to struggle through what it's, what is it to be 
an embodied human being that's born with these organs that are fine and good. Uh, but we're not taught that they're fine and good. We we sort of are, right? Like we, like we we're taught that God is a, a good creator God, and that this yeah, is good. Yeah. But at the same time, don't use this at all your whole life. That's bad. Yeah. Don't use it until I, your marriage. I think night. I think that there it's talked about as good in the abstract. Yes, like yes, your, your sexual side is good in the abstract. But then, well, how do you actually behave? Well, just never use it ever. Yeah. And and it's just kiboshed in in every context, right? Yeah. Uh, and it can create sort of a, a confusion, I think, with with young people sometimes. Yeah. And actually, I'm going to ask you a question. Sure. Because I wanted to ask this question from the very beginning, and it's so relevant right now for for the reason that you know I I am very critical of purity culture, and I'm very critical of any religious belief that leads us inside of ourself and not into our sensory experience in the world. And so you have this musical opener for your podcast and it goes something along the lines of why would you look outside yourself if you have a whole world inside of you? And I was wondering like, cause that to me sounds a bit solipsistic, a bit kind of Cartesian. What I mean by that is like a mind body separation mm -hmm. where the yeah, soul yeah. is more important than the body and the senses and the, and society yeah. and relationships and sex and whatever else. And I, that always for me blinks a, it's like a, a, a big red sign. I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. I, my whole life I was taught to hate my body. I don't want to, I don't want, I want to love my body. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious what your take on that opener was. Yeah. That, that's fascinating that you interpreted it that way, but I think good, good poetry and good art can be interpreted in, in a variety of different of ways. Yeah. Uh, I was starting a podcast about asking people to look into themselves and explore why they believe what they believe, not what, not what they think about the world, but why do you believe what you believe in a deep way? Mm. What is it about your upbringing? What is it about the relationships that you had? And one of the foundational aspects of this podcast that I'm bringing into this podcast is looking at the other person and saying, if I was you. I would believe what you believe, mm. right? And and the I was going through and trying to find good theme songs, and I hit play on this one song, and that, that was, was the it. first line I that mean, came up. Yeah, and, and it's true. Like the kingdom of God is within you, but it's also all around you. Uh, but yeah. I get what you're saying. Poetry is an empathy machine, just like film, yeah. just like any other piece of art. Yeah, and you're never going to find one poetic phrase that you can't pick apart. Oh, sure. Yeah, I was just being picky. Right. I thought, I thought, oh, that's You're interesting. I just didn't know why you cho chose it, so that's cool. Yeah, that's why I chose mm -hmm. it. But that goes to show the so fact now, that I, I thought that right away reflects the kind of mm, upbringing I had that I got yeah. defensive about it right away. I'm like, well, it must mean he's being this like platonic right, right. Orthodox guy, you know, <laughs> which I know you're right, not. Right. So <laughs> you are Orthodox, though. Don't get me wrong. That yeah. that is true. <laughs> what do you make of? Are there any positives that you've taken out of? Yeah, totally, absolutely. And I mean, it's going to sound completely paradoxical, but in so many ways, especially because I went from uh, this hyper charismatic Pentecostal upbringing that I was like going to Toronto and Africa and Trinidad and Tobago to do these like revival meetings with my dad. Uh, and then from that to like a Mennonite university, 
where they were so reserved and they wore like they they dressed up for church, whereas we didn't really do that. We went to church and waved flags and danced around. I think uh, there was more of a playfulness in the Pentecostal upbringing that I that I felt, and it was very hard for me to adjust from going from from that to sort of a Mennonite service where we're singing hymns now and we're not just going. Like for like an hour or two, <laughs> like there's so much passion and it's, it's like, it's zealous, right? We're like really belting things out. And in that way it is, it is uh, still a sensory experience. And I think I just want, I, I carried that with me, um, even in my own poetry that I write or in my own research or whatever I do. You've, as long as I've known you, you've always been interested in religion and stuff like that. Has that always been part of your thinking from a young boy? I think so, but I don't think it was explicit until I was outside of high school. Because, I mean, as a pastor's kid, you don't really think about the things that, you don't think about your context. Yeah, I studied this guy named Heidegger for my master's thesis. And he says that we're all born into this facticity, this we're thrown into a world and we don't get to choose the world we're thrown into. We're just thrown. And I think I just didn't reflect on that thrownness ever in my life. I just sort of like walked through um, high school, junior high, attending church on Sunday. And I didn't think too hard about it. I was more interested in, in playing drums and uh, trying to be in theater and singing and whatever else I was doing at the time. Uh, I think when I got to uh, just out of, outside of high school, I read a book called Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller. And then I read another book by C.S. Lewis called uh, The Great Divorce. And both of those books were like uh, my uh, life altering events for me. Like I just, I was like, wow, you can think about Christianity as narrative driven or as a parable about my own existence. And uh, oh, I can think about heaven and hell differently now too. That's exciting, but also terrifying. And I think those, uh, I think reading certain literature and being introduced to different perspectives and people and in university as well, I met Catholics for the first time in my life. And I was like, wait, you're not, you're not a Babylonian whore. What? (laughs) What's that? We've had, I haven't had any Catholic people on the podcast yet, though I will, but we've had a couple of Mennonites on the podcast and it's always come up how they've grown up with sort of a negative attitude of the Catholic yeah. Church. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, I was out, I hope my dad doesn't listen to this. Um, I love my dad a lot, but I was out with my dad for pizza yesterday and there's still this, uh, I know he might not have meant anything by it at all. So, but he, we were talking about um, Catholics. And I said, have you seen the movie, The Two Popes? I love that movie. I love Pope Francis. It's a good movie. And uh, I think he's just a gem. I mean, I don't agree with everything he says, of course, but I think he's brilliant. Um, And uh, I said, did you, have you seen this movie? And he said, no. And he said, but I'll tell you one thing, Brayden. I'll tell you one thing. I believe that Pope Francis is a born again Christian. I was like, well, the only reason you might say that is if you don't think that everybody else in the Catholic Church is a born-again Christian. <laughs> yeah. I know he's Catholic. Yeah, I know. But this one guy, yeah. he's a born-again Christian. Maybe made it. Maybe. <laughs> this is yeah. I, I grew yeah. up in a lot of that sort of uh not on it wasn't it wasn't insidious. It wasn't um meant to be uh malicious against other religious communities 
or, or denominations, but it was, it was just a lack of information. I think, uh, that people just didn't know what Catholics really believed. They thought they worshiped Mary. Same with the Orthodox. In fact, I didn't even know the word Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox until I was in my second year of university. I'd never even heard of it. And I went to school across the street from a Greek Orthodox church and I didn't know what it was. That's the church I got married in. Oh, it was beautiful. It's a beautiful Mm -hmm. church. Oh yeah. So I was wondering, a lot of people don't get the fun access to this Pentecostal life, right? These, whatever you call them, spirit tunnels. What did you call them? Fire tunnels, yeah. Fire tunnels Mm -hmm. and altar calls and this whole shebang. Are there any... Are there any fun stories of when you participated oh, yeah. directly in some of this stuff? Oh, and could yeah. you share a couple of those? I, I, I'll share a fun one for with, for, for okay. your audience. Sure. I uh, So when I was 18 years old, I went to a school in California. Uh, and I don't care about name dropping it at all. So it's called Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. I don't think they care either. I don't think they're listening to this podcast. And... Uh, they, this school was supposed to, it's sort of, we called the Hogwarts for Christians because you go there <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to yeah. learn how to use your magical spiritual giftings, right? And to tap into well, this. Uh, what's the name of the school again? Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. Right. Yeah. So you could tell from Hogwarts the, the, School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. <laughs> it rhymes. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so it's like, uh, it's actually pretty big. There's thousands of, uh, of students that go there and they rent out the big auditorium in the small city in California. And uh, there was this one fringe meeting that happened in Chico, California. And I we were told, don't go there. It's way too extreme. And this is the school that like was no- notorious for like having students go to graveyards and do what's called grave sucking, where you try to lift the dead out of the graves. No. And so they thought this guy was too extreme. And I was like, oh, man, I want God. I'm going to go there because he's got God. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Before. OK, OK, OK. You, <laughs> I didn't think we were you, be talking about this today, actually. You, you can't just walk past grave sucking <laughs> and not <laughs> not talk. It wasn't about taught. It, it wasn't taught at the school. There was a, a small group of, of students that went around and they said what they were doing was grave sucking, which meant that you put your hands on the grave and you sort of like pray over it and say, God, I want this person to come back to life. And and then they like, I'm sure there's so many people who are going to cringe right now listening to this podcast, but they like, uh, we try to raise the dead, we try to follow the uh, yeah. the ministry of Christ by, uh, well, you know, resurrection and the life. As, as far as I know, in my understanding is that is that the school comes from more kind of that word of faith tradition? Uh, yeah, it's a combination of so, many things. Prosperity, gospel, word of faith. Prosperity, yeah. So so just to clarify, one of the one of the ways that say like more Orthodox or Catholic or various types of sort of mainline Christian churches look at like Jesus Christ and, and the cross, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, right? Um, the way say an Orthodox person would look at that would say, um, that we see our struggles as our own cross, that we we participate with Christ in his cross when we bear our life's challenges and, and things like that, right? So the, the sacrifice of Christ gives us the power to bear what we have to bear in life. Yeah, right? that's beautiful. And the going, assum- the going assumption is your life's not going to be perfect, but that's okay. Christ is with you mm. there. But I think that this this school comes from a tra- uh, Christian tradition that says, well, Christ died 
on the cross for your sins and for the evils of the world so that you don't have to face the struggles of this world. And that, Exactly so, yeah. And, and that death and you being poor and you having a divorce or uh, a child dying, that's a, that's a sign that you have not yet fully accepted the cross of Christ in your life, which uh, is okay. That would be freedom. in some is, communities. Is that right? Well, that last part would be in some communities, but the ones that I was a part of never said that. They would always say, "We just don't okay. know why this happened," and that's it. Okay. They were they were kind of yeah, agnostic on on problems that of, of yeah. if you prayed for somebody and they didn't get healed. It wasn't always that you didn't have enough faith. Sometimes it depends on depends on the teacher or the pastor or whatever. Right. But. Um, Okay, so so my assumption is these people that are going around grave sucking have the assumption that the fact that people are dead in the ground is proof that they didn't maybe have enough faith in or it's or it's that if they don't go there, they're missing out on an opportunity that of somebody being raised from the dead. It's a big it's a big uh, it's a big loss. You miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. Yeah. Um, okay. Continue. Continue with this uh, radical guy. Yeah. So we go to this. Uh, we go to this fringe meeting in Chico, California, and this guy was known for uh, really uh, not only getting drunk in the spirit, but getting high in the spirit. So he was a former drug addict who became an evangelist and was touring around North America. And he would uh, say, "Okay, all right, guys, line it up." And so we would uh, prepare, you know, a heroin a, a heroin shot, but it wasn't a real heroin shot. It was just sort of with our imaginations, you know, like you do in kindergarten, but not with heroin. And uh, you like pat your hand and then you get ready to <laughs> inject the needle in <laughs> of the spirit of God. And we're all uh, doing that together. And people start howling. People start, uh, you know, barking and, uh, and, and running around like animals. And then we have this, what's, what he does is like a rave Eucharist service. So, uh, they, they have a DJ in there and the DJ is like, put it down, put it down, put it down, put it down. And he has like his, like this lights and everything. And then there's that, then, um, this teacher went in the back and came back out wearing, uh, like a, a monk outfit, like a Catholic, like a, like a, looks like a, a Carmelite or something. <laughs> and, uh, it looks like, he looked like St. Francis and he's like out there and he's holding this massive golden chalice. And it's filled with wine and he has this big loaf of bread in his hands. And uh, and it's kind of it was so comical because beside him, he passed this big loaf to this short, very short gentleman beside him. And so he's super tall. He's like seven feet tall. And this other guy's like four and a half feet. And so it's like this really <laughs> tall guy with a big chalice and a really short guy following him around with the bread. <laughs> it was hilarious and uh they were we all lined up in a circle we got in a circle and everybody's dancing right like they're in a, like they're in a club and then he'd get to you and he just start he would just stick it in your mouth like it's not covid safe at all he would like stick the the chalice in your mouth and you'd be dripping it all over your body all over the your shirt and getting it all soaked with wine and then he takes the bread and he just sticks it in your mouth and it's so like i would say that's very embodied to the point of like a festival for Bacchus or something. It was definitely not like your typical Eucharist experience. I remember leaving feeling like, wow, that was really something. I've never seen anything like that before. And yeah. Yeah. How, how did you feel at the different stages of that night? Um, like what, what was I going already followed his, uh, he, I read three books by him before going. I was so immersed in this world. I was such a radical Pentecostal. Um, 
to the point where, yeah, like I, going into this event, I think I was already prepared for the heroin, the fake heroin shots, the the rave Eucharist experience. I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. The group of they all called themselves the New Mystics, so that's the the name of the the group or whatever. And then, um, uh, yeah, I only did that school for one year, and then I got near the end of the year. I started to think, okay, well, you know what? Maybe all this all this jazz of uh, healing the sick and, you know, having direct immediate experiences with God, like audible voice kind of thing. Maybe it's not anything. Maybe it's in my head because what I remember having certain experiences and the, and it's going to sound weird, but the most vivid experience that I have that I actually don't understand wasn't with God, but it was with Satan. And I was in my bedroom and I had lit a bunch of candles, like a seance. I wasn't going to pray to the devil. Don't, don't get me wrong, but I was, I was ready to like get into the presence of God. So I was like going to make it all like romantic for me and God, because Jesus is my boyfriend. So, uh, we have like everything kind of nice and laid out in the room. And then I lie on the ground in my underwear and I'm like praying in tongues, which is like, like stuff like that. Right. And, uh, I'm ready for God to sort of invade the room. And, uh, then I, it's quiet. I didn't have any sound on. It's just that kind of like tongues sound. And then I feel this like evil presence in the room. And I'm like, what, what is that? Like, you know, when you, when it gets really quiet sometimes and you're in a room by yourself and you feel like there's some sort of presence there. Uh, I was, I was terrified and I thought that that was the devil. So I got up and I was like, devil, I know you're here. Get out of here right now. And I start talking to the devil or commanding the devil to leave. And I remember the more I spoke to the devil, the more that devil became real for me. And I think that's a lot of this phenomena surrounding charismaticism is the more you play the dramatic roles that you're given of being the prophet, of being the, um, the mediator between heaven and earth, uh, you begin to create a reality for yourself that's easy to step into when everybody else believes that same thing. I'm sure this is the same thing that happened in Nazi Germany. Not saying that those are the same things at all. <laughs> I'm not saying those are the same things at all. <laughs> but I'm saying when you get in a, a community or a politic or an institution where everybody has the same mentality and nobody's allowed to question anything, then your world becomes enchanted no matter what. Uh, and my world was heavily enchanted. And so university was a big process of disenchantment for me. Wow. That's a cool story. Yeah, I got lots of weird stories. Did the devil end up leaving or did he hang around for the um, night? Play some D&D? &D? Uh, yeah, play some D&D &D with the devil. <laughs> no, I think he ended up leaving. I remember feeling a, a sense of peace and security, but I did leave the room and go mm -hmm. uh, see my, my, my housemates for a bit. Uh, I didn't want to stay in there. So maybe in maybe maybe the devil d didn't leave. Maybe I just left and the devil stayed there. I don't know. Did maybe you see your friends in the in your underwear? Uh, probably, actually. Yeah. <laughs> we were pretty close. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so you grew up in a Pentecostal home. Mm -hmm. You had these experiences. You ended up going to California to the school. Yeah. And you started thinking, well, what if this is all in my head? Yeah. What if it's and a projection? Then, yeah, whatever. Right. Were and that was also because books? I didn't, I didn't actually see any, like I didn't have any empirical evidence of healings. I would see a lot of, uh, you know, 
oh, test this out again. Is your knee okay? And then it would happen again and again and again. And then eventually I, I just felt like the person who was being asked this question for the 15th time was like, you know, it's a little bit better. Maybe I don't feel pain right at this current moment. And they'd be like, he's healed, he's healed. Get him up on stage. Give him a testimony. And like, there was just so much of that, that, and I know I've, I have, I have charismatic friends today who would speak to me now and be like, well, I'm sorry that was your experience, but I've had genuine experiences in this community. Mm-hmm. And I think they're being authentic. I don't believe that it's actually, they're seeing anything. Um, but I think they're being genuine and I think they think that they're seeing something. And I almost miss that. I almost uh, envy that enchantment that they can still look at the world in such a way that they can believe that those things are possible. For me, I don't believe that anymore. And it's been liberating and it's been heartbreaking. So you kind of have both. Were there times when you gave prophecy to somebody or you told somebody's future or you healed anybody? Uh, I didn't heal anybody. I thought I had healed people, but I deconstructed I mean, it the same way. As, as in the moment, I mean. Oh, sure. I mean, I thought, I thought it, but I mean, but most of the times when I did it, it was like, oh, my stomach ache went away. You know, it wasn't like something I could really prove uh, or my headache is gone. Uh, but I, I know that there are times when, and I actually think that there's something to this. I also think there's something to speaking in tongues. Uh, not metaphysically, but psychologically i think there's something powerful about getting out of categories that we have in the world these like this is in this is out this is what a tree is in its essence because i know what a tree is i was taught that and just looking at something or just experiencing what it is to blah 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 blah, have a tongue and a mouth right i think there's something kind of like it gets into a different part of your brain i think but anyway so i uh i did have experiences where i would go to people up to people and um give them words of knowledge, AKA read their email is what we also called it. We would read their email. Like, how did you know that? You know? Uh, and I'd say, well, wait, wait, sorry, sorry. Would you literally go into their computer? No, no, no. It was just an expression. Like, yeah, we would go and, and, uh, so I would see somebody, we would go on these things called treasure hunts where you're finding the treasure out there that that's God's child. And so you go on the streets and you, pray about something and you see like oh write down a word so i'm writing down and i'm in a mall the color blue okay and so you walk around and then you wait till you see a blue shirt or a blue set of sneakers or a blue sign and then okay is there anybody in that item of clothing is there anybody in that store and so you go in there it's your first clue and then you see somebody behind the till or you see somebody who's wearing the blue shirt and then you say okay god now what do you want me to say to them and so God, you know, it's all intuitive. You don't actually hear anything. You just sort of like go, ah, I have a feeling that this person is going to be married soon. Or I have a feeling that this person is getting ready to enter into a stage of life that's a bit more strenuous. Maybe they're starting school soon. Maybe their uh, parents, just one of their parents just passed away. And, and you kind of guess, right? Like, so I, I would walk up to somebody like this and be like, Hey, uh, sorry to interrupt you. My name's Brayden. I um, just was praying. And is it okay if I just share what I heard God say to me? And people are nice. It's pretty rare to get that one asshole who's like, nah, get the fuck out of here, you know? So like, <laughs> I'd be like, they'd be like, yeah, sure. You know, that's fine. And so I'd be like, um, okay, so uh, what I'm feeling is that, you know, you are a person, I'll do it on you right now, Yuri. So 
you are a person who, well, I know you, so that's actually not fair. I'm not supposed to do it on people I know, so I won't do it on you. Mm-hmm. So let's just say that, like, I didn't know this person. I'm like, hey, you know what? You are about to become an Orthodox uh, priest. Uh, you are, uh, maybe you you just did an assignment you're worried about, the grade. And you kind of just like, I don't know. Sometimes you just deduce mm-hmm. it off the pa- pair of shorts they're wearing. Maybe they're a basketball player because they're wearing basketball shorts. <laughs> yeah. And then they'd be like either, oh, you know, that doesn't really connect with me, but thank you. or Or they'd be like. Uh, wow, you know, that really spoke to me like that. That's amazing. And sometimes you get them crying too, because they get so emotional about something. You get it right spot on. But the thing is, you do it so many times that it, all of the ones that didn't work were just practice runs. And the ones that did were the real deal. And you're like, yeah, I heard God right on that one, you know? So that's kind of how it worked for me. And then eventually I was just like, hey, wh- what is that? Is that just intuition or is that really something other than intuition? Is that s- seriously something spiritual? And I ended up deciding that it was more intuition. Not that that's not divine. I think intuition can be incredibly divine in the sense that it brings us together in our humanity. I want to, in our Patreon only extended interview, I want to get into more where you stand now on a lot of things you know, maybe through deconstruction or reconstruction of your faith or whatever that means. Um, But for the rest, we have about, you know, 10 minutes or so. Um, I'd like to sort of keep tracing your journey from from here. So you ended up going to Canadian Mennonite University after you went to California? Yes. To to Hogwarts? That's correct, yeah. I, uh, yeah, after Hogwarts, I went to a Mennonite university, (laughs) (laughs) which actually looked more like Hogwarts because the building's like a castle building. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, I did my undergrad there for five years. I studied, uh, theology, biblical studies and philosophy. And then I wrote a thesis about scapegoating and, uh, anthropology around how the devil has been used throughout history to scapegoat people groups. We could talk about that another time if you want. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe we'll talk about that in the, the Patreon. Sure. So. Yeah. That sounds like fun. Um, and, uh, then I ended up going to an Anglican church for t- three years i want to say when, when uh, you, which was during my time at cmu so when you came back from california did you still go to whatever winnipeg church yeah i actually to? start i started a house church uh oh. a charismatic house church for two years and uh it ran it was very successful there was i think 75 80 people that came and it was uh, centered around this idea that we could be ecumenical in a house church and that institutional religion was actually bad but that house churches were good because it gets back to the church of acts. And I thought that I was reading a lot of this author, two authors, uh, Leonard sweet and Frank Viola who had this, uh, big ministry in, in the Southern States called organic church, which, uh, centered around house church communities. And I was really into that, but it was still extremely charismatic, but now I was leading a charismatic community and there was Mennonites that came to it. We had some Catholics come. That was my first exposure. Actually, it wasn't, it wasn't university. It was, uh, it was that house church that really exposed me to, um, different denominations and started getting me to ask questions. But even then the Mennonites were kind of charismatic and the Catholics were kind of charismatic. So I didn't really get that much of a divergence in belief. So I'm currently in the process. Uh, I'm part of a community that's that's formalizing as a church community. How What did that church look like in this house church? Like, yeah. did you have a board? Did you have pastors? Like, how did that yeah. work? Yeah, uh, we didn't have like an official board. There was uh, four members that were the leaders of the group. There was no pastor. Nobody called anybody pastor. 
uh, or priest or whatever. It was uh, it was like Brayden and I, I won't name the other guys, but it was like four males that led the group. And uh, one of them led did music and led worship. Uh, and so it was uh, 45 minutes of music in my living room or sometimes it was other people's houses, too. We would like alternate between houses. And then it was 45 minutes of sermon. And sometimes that meant somebody in the community was able to speak about their story, kind of like what we're doing, but like a little less uh, of a conversation. Um, Or they would be able to share a talent or a gifting. So if there was an artist, they would be able to share like their art. Um, And then we would have 45 minutes of prayer. And so in this time, uh, you get assigned a prayer partner. And that's your person that you're to reach out to that week and do something for them that is relevant to what they're, where what life stage they're at. So if they're a soccer player, you go to their soccer game. If they are a barista at a, at a cafe, you go get a coffee from them and you ask them how their ship's going. And that cultivated a sense of community in them. A lot of it was young people who were craving other friends that of, of the same faith. And so they were really um, hungry for something like that. And that's kind of the format of it. And then it ended up growing. People really liked that idea. And so then people kept coming and coming. And uh, yeah, after about two years, sorry, I'm closing my window. I don't want this to get in the audio. Um, After about two years, I was already at the place at CMU where I was questioning things like, oh my goodness, what does it mean that Jesus is the son of God? (gasps) Is this a, a political term? Son of David term? Does this, is this not the second person of the Trinity anymore? Big questions like that. And that was terrifying for me because I, my world was beginning to crumble. My whole edifice of faith and meaning in my life was being able, was, was crumbling and associated with that was my value system, my morality, everything, how I interacted with people, the language I used around people. And I remember I had a I had, uh, I was so, I was reading Nietzsche and Freud and Marx and, you know, the masters of suspicion, as they say, and, uh, and all these figures in history that were like very, uh, um, very strong arguments against the Christian faith. And I remember thinking, I don't know what I believe anymore. And so I had to make a decision in that moment. Am I going to be authentic or an inauthentic person? And I went to my group and I said, Hey guys, I just... I don't know what I think anymore. And so I'm passing this group on to somebody else and somebody else led it for about a year and then it petered out and kind of stopped happening. And at that point, I found myself going to an Anglican church. I kind of fooled around with the Orthodox a little bit, but it was just more like in small conversations. And I went to a few divine liturgies, but it was always too formal for me because I grew up Pentecostal and I wasn't used to that amount of formality. If you'd like to listen to the second half of this interview, you can head over to patreon.com slash priest. Your support is what makes this podcast possible. Thanks for listening. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all